0: PAX is an idea, and I present it to you today in the hope that you will either say, clear out your stupid twit, or my greater hope that you will say, oh, we can help you turn that into something a bit more realisable and realistic. I have three stages in what I propose to do. First, I'm going to tell you how the idea emerged. Secondly, I'm going to tell you about the work that has been done and the progress that I think we have made on it. And third, which for me is the most important part, I wish to present the problems ahead and the difficulties that I'd like to share with you. First, can I just briefly tell you the background to it? Um, People in Oxford will, of course, remember the name Aung San Suu Kyi. And so... When there were pictures from Burma, or Myanmar maybe we're supposed to call it, in 2008, we saw pictures of orange-coated monks in the streets being beaten by the policemen of the regime. And I'm sure everybody in Oxford, because of Aung San Suu Kyi and her links to Oxford, but I too knew that Reporters were not allowed into Burma at that time, and certainly not press photographers. Who took those pictures? People took them with their mobile phones, and they uploaded them. And that just set me thinking, blimey, I've never seen inside pictures like that from Burma before. Now, the next ones that really stood me up were from Iran after the election, which brought Ahmadinejad back to power, or... Well, they did bring him back to power, whether the election brought him back to power or just the fixing of the regime brought him back to power. And in the streets, we saw demonstrations. We saw, again, pictures. Now, my company has made programs in Iran. I can tell you, as others here can tell you, getting into Iran, filming in Iran, getting access is very difficult. Who took those pictures? We actually saw one woman being killed in the streets in Tehran. Again. Again. They were obviously uploads from people with their mobile phones. And then in Kyrgyzstan we saw the same thing, and then this year, how important it was, I'm not prepared to argue, but this year we've seen it from lots and lots of countries in North Africa. This is an important new source of data. Okay, step one. Step me thinking, how the hell do we use that to good purpose? And then you think, well, if you're getting uploads of pictures, There are obviously, at the same time, internet uploads of information. Internet access to words. So I start thinking, if we're going to try and see, can we build on the uploads of pictures? And in future places of violence, there will be such uploads of pictures. Already we've been told about the growth in internet access and the growth in mobile phone access. They're growing extraordinarily. We will be able to get such pictures and then we will be able to look out for words. So we set up an organisation that's going to do both. It's going to try and gather data about growing violence. Words. Well, very small numbers of words. Let's call it murder. Let's call it explosion. Let's call it destroy. Let's call it help. If in Oxford... On average, those words are used on the telephone, used on the internet, a hundred times a week, and then we find they're going up to a thousand times a week. It's worth looking at, isn't it? And if at the same time we're getting some pictures from Oxford of somebody attacking somebody else right outside St John's College, say, gets interesting, doesn't it? And that provides data which frequently In the early stages of conflict, journalists don't bother with. The journalists come when it's getting to be a big story, when it's getting really interesting. But is there a point when one can go in earlier because the data is coming from the individuals on the ground when maybe some local journalists are reporting it, but certainly nobody is being sent from the BBC yet? And then there's the third level of available data. Satellites. When we find, we, packs this imaginary thing, we find that we're getting information that in Oxford there have been pictures uploaded by somebody saying, look at the way my mother's house was burned down, look at the way this attack occurred, and the words are starting to occur, we then say to one of the satellite organisations, would you mind just pausing your satellite over or directing your satellite cameras and looking into it? That's the thought. About a year ago I wrote this thought down on some bits of paper and I sent it to Google. And Google said, well, that's quite interesting. We'll have a conference about it. So I had to organize the conference. They provided coffee, and the place, and lunch. That was it. It was very good of them. And I've got quite a lot of decent people to come. I'll tell you if you want to know. And at the end of it, Google said, OK, we'll give you some money to develop that. And this is the next stage. So this is what Google gave me the money to do. And I got some competent people to help me. And I want to talk through this. This is the stage which I think we've worked up. Certainly if I haven't worked it up, then I've wasted Google's money. And it really tells you some of what I've said already. So let's start with the left-hand column, the sources. OK, keyword searches, I've said that. SMS text, it's much the same. Emails, it's much the same. Photos and videos, I've said that. You can see that's the data that we're hoping to gather. And we hope to gather it via... Am I, is this machine making me too loud or anything? I'm just like, OK, we're hoping to gather it via an algorithm the PAX algorithm. Now, I should say a word about that because um, I thought, oh dear, that's going to cost a bloody fortune. So Google said, well, get some people over from Ushahidi. They've developed some very good algorithms. And so some, some people came to London from Ushahidi, and they really did. Do people know about Ushahidi? I'll just, I'll just have a little deviation into Kenya. Kenya's about the, the only country in the world we haven't tackled today. After the presidential election in Kenya in 2009, December 2008, January 2009, or something like that, um, there was terrible conflict, and most of the newspapers in Kenya just went out of business for a while, and a group of people thought, in order that... Others of our fellow citizens can be warned when danger is exploding near them, we can use this modern technology stuff to get uploads and to simply pass the information around on mobile phones, on people's internet, whatever. And so they created an algorithm for the purpose of gathering such data from around Kenya. And as a result of that being quite useful in enabling people to scoot out of danger areas. Ushahidi have gone on to do it subsequently in other places, to try and help develop danger warning systems. And the Ushahidi people who came over to see us said, listen, all the technology we have developed is available for PACS free, not only is it available for PACS free, but we will help you to develop it so as to be able to not only gather the data, but help evaluate the data and check out that the data is actually valid. Because of course, Somebody, let's call it for the moment, since I'm just a bloody prejudiced sort, let's call it the government of China and its allies, will put out data which is plain bloody lies, saying we are the innocent victims of these attacks. We've got to have a, a system for evaluating the sound and the unsound data. Anyway, the PACS algorithm is data three. So what we do is, <coughs> A, we gather all that data via the PACS algorithm, then we come to the third column, crowd analysis by registered evaluators and satellites. Okay, what's that about? On the algorithm, we've put out a questionnaire. Have you been to this country, let's call it Oxford, where this terrible crisis has just seems to be arising? Do you speak the local language of that country? When were you last there? Why did you go? Questionnaire. To those who answer the question satisfactorily, we then say, well, we can give you a bit of help to do some proper evaluation. One of the bits of help we can offer them is these satellite pictures. I can tell you, having sat down with people from um, UNOSAT, I'm sorry, this is another deviation, I must uh, divert. Um, Google also got me to meet people from UNOSAT, which is the United Nations organisation that uses satellites to see where natural disasters can be examined in detail so as to help people so that they know about the use of satellites. And secondly, Satellite Sentinel, which is the organisation George Clooney helped make well known um, in the southern Sudan for giving warning of the eruption of civil war violence, whatever it was going to be, after the referendum in January, three months ago. Um, Both those groups showed me satellite pictures. I have to tell you, when you look at a satellite picture, it doesn't immediately say much to you. I mean, it's 250,000 miles up there, the camera. Of course, if there are any clouds, you don't get a picture at all. But even if you do get a picture, my God, making sense of it is not easy. However, you can say to the satellite, don't just take a picture from straight up there, Would you mind taking a picture from 45 degrees over there? So assuming that this violence has occurred at the front of St John's College, we can, instead of just getting a picture of St John's College from up there, get a picture of St John's College from over here, which might be slightly better. So we're going to make available to these volunteer analysts satellite pictures and other data that can help them evaluate the data we're getting in. So who the hell are all these people who are volunteering? Okay, this is a problem for PACs. In order for PACs to work, it has got to be a completely worldwide enterprise. It has got to get people all over the world willing to say, yes, I have been to that part of Pakistan, or I have been to that part of, I don't know, Ethiopia or wherever it is, and I am prepared to try and help understand. And I realise, of the countries that I have visited... I really would be prepared to give my time, and I think a lot of people would be prepared to give their time, because when violence erupts in a place that you've been to and know something about, the ability simply to say, yeah, that's a city I've been in, I do speak a bit of the language, and certainly I know something about it, I don't mind sitting down for days on end, looking at data that's being uploaded to try and help understand what's going on. So what is this notion of total global? Is it ridiculous? Well, I would say it isn't ridiculous, because, and I'll take us to the next stage, and then that begins to make slight sense, maybe, of the notion. The next stage is all that data, I just want to put one other little point to you, which is, when the registered evaluators in column three have done their stuff, their comments, they feed back into the PACT algorithm. So the algorithm takes account of the criticism and further analysis of the data collected in column one. All that then comes on into the PACS barometer. The PACS barometer is, in effect, a report on violence anywhere in the world. Now, one of the organisations that have been helping us is the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And they say there's, by and large, about 75 places in the world that you need to look at for this purpose. They've been doing it, but they say they haven't been doing it with the sort of sophistication that this proposes, but they do put out a regular survey of places where danger is exploding. So their their analysis is probably pretty sound. So we're looking at a barometer which covers about 75 places in the world where violence is erupting to a point at which it's just sensible to be looking at it. I then categorise it into three stages. Early warning, tension, and crisis. Early warning is obvious, self-explanatory. Tension, well, it's getting a little bit bad, but it's not yet totally terrible. And then crisis. The crisis point, obviously, it is getting so serious that we think there is a definite danger that war or genocide are about to erupt. At this point, a completely new procedure is taken up. Up till then, this has been entirely governed by the algorithm and volunteers. It's actually been surprisingly cheap to be able to run it as far as the end of the yellow columns. At this point, we have to do a much, much more rigorous evaluation. The crisis moment, we really think that violence is about to explode into war or genocide. A, we may be back to Oxford again. We hire people who know a thing or two. They may be scholars here. They may be journalists, possibly not here. They may be diplomats, anywhere in the world. And it's quite important, of course, that these evaluators have real knowledge of the area, and they get paid. They have to get paid, because once a crisis starts developing, they've got to work bloody fast. They have to look at the data, apply such knowledge as they have from anywhere else, and very quickly. And, of course, at this point, we can do something rather more with the satellites. At the earlier stage, stage three. We would be using data which satellites are gathering anyway. We wouldn't actually be paying very much for it. Now there's a very complex sub-issue here about paying for the satellites, and I could report to you in much greater detail if anybody wants to know about the conversations that I've had with the two satellite organisations that we've talked to about how you pay for satellite data. The quantity of satellites is going up, the payments arrangements are complex, but it is not inconceivable. But at this point it's a more expensive operation, because we actually have to say we want a satellite to home in close really go up close to St. John's College and look. Now, satellites are capable of quite surprising enlargement and homing in, but it costs money. But at this stage, when we're in effect going to be saying there is the danger of a war or genocide happening and further action has to follow, you need very high quality authorization, authentication, sorry, of the data you're gathering. If that authentication process says bloody hell yes, this is getting very close to being a war or a genocide. Something's got to be done. Okay, Pax puts out an alarm. Now this is as far as we've got with the working out of it. I now come to the stage where I really could be very grateful for your ideas. I will tell you my ideas, but my ideas have not been further developed by talking to the parties that I'm now going to refer to. What happens at a Pax alarm moment? I have a very clear concept of who can influence the parties to a growing violent conflict? And I'd like to try to explain my ideas by talking about three historical cases. The first case I'd like to talk about, and I want to talk about these cases to demonstrate one fact, which is that there's always an alarm moment. There is a gap in time when you can identify the beginnings of violence, and you can identify the signs that it's going to get really nasty. But there is a few weeks or a few months of available time to getting something done about it. So what I'm about to refer to is two things. One is the alarm moment. And two, the potential conciliator state. Because for every such crisis moment, there is a potential conciliator state. The first alarm moment I want to talk to you about is 1987. 1987, Slobodan Milosevic is sent to Kosovo Polje to give a speech to Serbs there. The purpose is to calm down, generally advance the policies which Tito advanced throughout Yugoslavia. All the various rival communities in this state keep friendly, keep on good terms, don't get into violent conflict. Milosevic, on a second visit after talking to his close colleagues, spoke some words to the Serbs that he was addressing in Kosovo-Polje, and the words were, You will not be beaten again. Now Milosevic knew perfectly well that nobody in his audience had been beaten. So what did those words mean? Those words meant the time has come for us Serbs to do a bit of beating. They all knew that, and when he went back to Belgrade, he made certain that those words were played and replayed on Belgrade television. He had then a period of some months to work up, what he wanted, which was a Serbian aggression against its various neighbours within Yugoslavia. First of all, he had to get rid of Ivan Stambolic, who was the president of Serbia. He did that. Secondly, he had to get all the activities worked up to get the Serbs to decide that they were going to attack the Croats and so forth. It took some months. I say there is a potential conciliator state and I say the potential conciliator state was Russia. Okay, you may say potty, the Russians never do a thing like that. The reason I say Russia is that 12 years later, a decision was taken by the international community that pressure had to be put on Serbia to stop its aggressive action, specifically in Kosovo, and three people were sent to tell Milosevic to bloody well stop it. Marti Artisari, the president of Finland and a well-known peacemaker. Strobe Talbot, United States Assistant Secretary of State, and Viktor Chernomyrdin, former prime minister of Russia. My company, my television program-making company, has interviewed Artisari and Talbot and and Martisari and Talbot told us neither of us had any impact whatsoever on Milosevic and his inner group. The only person who persuaded them was Czernomirdin and in the end Czernomirdin addressed them and we didn't even bother to go into the meeting. That was the meeting in which he swung them round. The fact is that Russia was in a relationship with Serbia Best old friend, long-standing, whatever it is, similar religious background, whatever the background, doesn't matter. There is a state that is the potential conciliator state. Okay, I've given you my first one, Yugoslavia. My second one is Rwanda. If I got one minute more? I can't do it in one minute more. Absolutely no. not. Give me three. You're five minutes over. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. just I'll time. try and make Rwanda very quick. The Rwanda story is dead simple. Do you all know what the story is. The Tutsis murdered in large numbers by the Hutu the conciliated state, France. As I expect many of you know, the French had paid for and provided military trainers for the Hutus. Those military trainers sent information to Paris that if a genocide or an agri- further aggression continues against the Tutsis, Tutsis whom, ha- whom we have driven out, who the Hutus, with our help, have driven out some 300,000 of them, many of whom have been to Uganda. Those who've been to Uganda have had good experience in fighting in the Civil War. there. They will come back, and they will defeat you, the Hutus, and us, therefore, the French interests. What was said was true. The returning Tutsis did indeed win, but that had two consequences. Of course, the consequence everybody knows about, the terrible consequence, is that there are a million million Hutus now living in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But the second consequence, when the Tutsis came back and eventually set up their, their government, which wasn't an immediate activity, one of the things that they announced and have carried into effect is that in future in the schools in Rwanda, one subject is going to cease to be taught. Guess what? French. And what is it going to be replaced with? English. And why? One of the reasons why Mitterrand and his government backed the Hutus, well, you've got one side of the story. Am I really? Not another minute. I've I got to stop there. I've got a third case. If I can remember. One, one minute, and then we close stones. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I must just try and remember what my third case is. I can't. Oh yes, yes, yes. My third case is Georgia. Um, the, Georgia, the Russia-Georgia war, 2009. Um, Condoleezza Rice. The, the, the Washington knew that a war was coming. No, Washington knew that Sakharovely the president of Georgia, was behaving aggressively and that he needed shutting down. So Condoleezza Weiss- Rice went to Tbilisi, the governor of Georgia, and told him this is the 9th of July 2009. You must not take action that is going to provoke the Russians to hit back at you. The Russians will defeat you. Don't. And she left, and she was quite satisfied that she had um, shut him up. He wasn't going to do it. So why between the 9th of July when she told him not to and the 7th of August when he did, launching violence against the capital of South Ossetia, why did the United States desist from continuing pressure on him to behave himself? I had one of my colleagues ask the member of the National Security Council who was directly dealing with this and his answer was as follows, this is quotes. Our intel was disastrous. I was routinely dissatisfied with our level of information, particularly at the onset of the conflict. This was a fast-moving, rapid crisis. Who did what first is significant in this scenario, and we didn't know." End of quote. This isn't from me, this is from the NSC chair. The fact is that information, in my opinion, fed into Washington during that month could have got Rice back to Tbilisi to say to Sir Carshley, bloody well done. OK, I'd better stop, because otherwise I'm going to get told off. I I got more I want to say. More, a lot more. <laughs>